Welcome to the serialized podcast edition of Paper Arrows, a presentation in six episodes of my master's thesis in geography at the University of California, Berkeley, based on field research I conducted in Honduras in 2000 and 2001. I am the author and narrator, Daniel Graham. Episode 3, Counterbanditry, or Narratives of Otherness. In today's podcast, we will travel together to Olancho to hear Campesinos' tales of the Robin Hood of Honduras, Canuto. As villagers tell it, both those who knew him and those who did not, but who build upon his legend and legacy, Canuto was a magical trickster and a powerful ally of the poor. If we listen to these stories with a careful ear, we can hear the strains of a song of resistance, sung by folks across the Olancho countryside, that tacitly reject the dominant narratives projected upon everyday Olanchanos by dominant society actors and framings. These stories, and the circumstances surrounding their production, swirl with complexities and contradictions, and they bespeak a power imbalance perhaps too great to be overcome with mere words. But these are fighting words, invoked by a spirited people, and they signal that community lands and livelihoods will not so easily be surrendered. Section 2. Counterbanditry, or Narratives of Otherness This dump is the center of the world now. Captain Michael Sheehan, U.S. Army, 1981 Perfect, said Canuto. On your way, take me to Gualaco. I've got a matter to settle. Los Cayos de San Esteban, Núñez Oliva, 2000. As one might suspect, much symbolic importance accrues to certain outsized Olanchano personalities. Infamous Olanchanos have at times become important fulcrums, providing discursive leverage for both the central state and local actors in their contests with each other over control of the region. Uick and Silby argue that stories are powerful tools because the values they express are woven throughout the narrative. Quote, Because narratives make implicit rather than explicit claims regarding causality and truth as they are dramatized in particular events regarding specific characters. Stories elude challenges, testing, or debate. End quote. Ewick and Silby, 1995. In fact, I would argue, challenges to stories are found in great abundance. It's just that the challenges often come in the form of other stories. In Olancho, one might be hard-pressed to identify a narrative that is not at once a counter-narrative. Parties at odds with one another join a discursive battle over the meaning of shared symbols and some of the most important symbols are living people. One such living symbol was Cinchonero, the belt maker, Serapio Romero, who launched a quixotic campaign against the Honduran state in Olancho's capital city, Juticalpa, in 1868. Cinchonero and his small band succeeded in wresting Juticalpa from military control for several days. Cinchonero's most celebrated act during his brief tenure as commander of the city 
was to give a Christian burial to the remains of two Olanchano heroes who had been captured and executed by the army in 1865 at the end of the two-year civil war. To do that, he had to climb the highest hill in the city and retrieve the rebels' boiled skulls from a locked iron cage, where the military had put them on display as a chilling reminder to people in the region that Olancho belonged to the Honduran state. The occupation of Juticalpa was short-lived, as was Cinchonero, and President Medina used the government newspaper to publish the words that opened the previous chapter. Quote, in Olancho there are no political parties, and that land, because of its most beautiful appearance, could be described by the adage, it's a piece of heaven fallen to earth, were it not for the lack of culture of its inhabitants. End quote. In this way, Medina claimed for the state the riches of Olancho, while impugning the character of its native inhabitants, whom the central government also referred to as bandits. Choosing to cast the region's guerrilla fighters as bandits was a way of explaining away the political content of their uprising. Medina's attack on the people of Olancho was not merely rhetorical. In 1865, after boiling the ringleaders' heads, Medina orchestrated the hanging of as many as 1,200 insurrectionary Olanchanos and ordered the relocation of 600 families into model villages at a time when the total departmental population stood at less than 30,000. Sarmiento, 1990. Cinchonero was the enemy of the central state, and this helped make him the people's hero in Olancho. Respected both for his anti-state zeal and for his reputed hatred of the rich, Cinchonero today is considered by many Olanchanos to be their department's greatest son. His daring do inspired a left-wing guerrilla group in the 1980s to name themselves Los Cinchoneros. A modern-day analog to Cinchonero is the social bandit Canuto, a young man from the municipio of Gualaco who in the 1980s quickly rose to legendary single-name status in the department for his Olanchano audacity and his disdain for both local and state elites. When Nunez wrote of the family feud in San Esteban, he could not resist including a chapter on the illustrious bandit Canuto. To my knowledge, the only character in Los Gallos de San Esteban whose real name Nunez did not change for the book. Nunez researched and wrote about an actual episode in which Canuto kidnapped and briefly held the parish priest from the municipio of Gualaco, which borders San Esteban to the southwest. In his exaggerated description of Canuto, Nunez describes the archetypal Olanchano male. Padre Vicente slammed on the brakes, and the vehicle skidded several meters on the loose sand of the road, stopping a few paces from the rifle-wielding man. The man was tall, dark-skinned, and of uncommon musculature, like Stallone. His chest was bare, crisscrossed by two bandoliers full of ammunition. He wore green fatigues, completely covered with pockets and compartments, and some dissonant leather cowboy boots that went up to his knees. The priest observed this man who'd stepped right off the movie screen, and he doubted his own sensibilities. Was it real what his eyes saw, or was it an illusion? Núñez Oliva, 2001. Santos Canuto Montalvan Antúñez Santos Canuto Montalvan Antúñez was born on January 15, 1959, in the small northern Olancho village of San Pedro, a few kilometers from the municipal seat of Gualaco. 
Most people who knew Canuto as a child agree that he was a solemn and respectful kid. Nearly everything to come after that is open to debate. The defining tragedy in Canuto's life came in his youth. Canuto's father, José Montalvan, had run into trouble with the patriarch of the neighboring Sevilla family. Somehow, improbably, a misunderstanding over the sale of a pig led José Sevilla to kill Canuto's father. Over the course of the next few days, most of the male members of both families had killed each other off. Canuto survived the slaughter, but was forced to flee in order to avoid further reprisal or police capture. This unfortunate series of events doomed Canuto to live as a phantom, ever running, haunting the length and breadth of Olancho over a span of several years. The lure of Gualaco was strong, however, and it was to the municipality of Gualaco that he always eventually returned, until his reported death in 1992. Across Olancho, fantastic tales abound and purport to explain many of Canuto's exploits. Some of these stories describe Canuto as a powerful warlock, while self-described realists attribute Canuto's long and successful career to his remarkable cunning. Whether they focus on Canuto's supernatural powers or his canny wile, what most of these stories have in common is that they tend to draw dichotomizing lines in the sand between rich and poor, between ranchers and campesinos, between Olancho and the state, between us and them. In the popular imagination, at least, Canuto was a champion of the humble Olancho campesino and the scourge of wealthy ranchers and the central state police. Canuto's career spanned the decade of the 1980s, a time when many outsiders were coming into Honduras and Olancho. In the early years of that decade, the ineffectual presidency of Roberto Suazo Córdoba left internal security matters to the Fort Benning-trained anti-communist crusader General Gustavo Álvarez Martínez, whose policies he modeled after those of the architects of Argentina's dirty war. Under Álvarez, the Honduran government worked hard to fill the United States' need for a base of operations for its Cold War-related interventions on both the Nicaraguan and Salvadoran borders. Honduras was so accommodating, in fact, that some political critics began to refer to the country as the USS Honduras. In a refugee camp for walking casualties of the war in El Salvador, U.S. Special Forces Captain Michael Sheehan opined on Honduras's suddenly central place in geopolitics. This dump is the center of the world now. Olancho, which shares part of its southern border with Nicaragua, became, as strange as it sounds, the battleground of a foreign war. The terrain was of key military and political importance to the Contra forces. It bordered the strategic Rio Coco, and it was far enough away from most Hondurans' disapproving gaze to allow foreign troops to hole up in Honduras for several years. The Contras made use of a military base called El Aguacate near Catacama Solancho that was maintained by soldiers from Honduras's 16th Infantry Battalion. El Aguacate was the Contras' military prison and torture camp. Bodies of missing persons, Sandinistas, Contra deserters, and suspected Honduran subversives are still being exhumed from the grounds of the base. The base served as an important communications hub for the various Contra camps that spread along the Nicaraguan border. El Aguacate was also a staging ground in 1983 and 1984 for an enormous joint military field training exercise, Big Pine II, that involved several thousand U.S., Honduran, and Nicaraguan Contra soldiers. 
Not all Olanchanos were discomfited by the U.S. and Contra presence, but most resented the occupation and were outraged by the spate of state-sponsored disappearances at that time. The Catholic Church, which had previously acquitted itself well in the defense of subaltern groups' rights in Olancho and throughout Honduras, was no longer quite the same progressive voice it had once been. Several years before the Contra War began, in 1975, a cabal of ranchers in the Honduran military collaborated in the massacre of two priests and twelve others involved in the land reform movement in Olancho. In the wake of that event, the Catholic Church all but retired from the political arena in Olancho. This abandonment by their only powerful ally left campesinos with few resources at their disposal for their self-defense against the growing power and land holdings of the largest cattle ranchers. Nationwide, but led by Olancho, Honduras's land holdings given to pasture was rapidly increasing. In 1952, the share was 822,000 hectares, 32% of the total agricultural land in the country. By 1982, these numbers had increased to 2.2 million hectares and 70%. That same year, Álvarez Martínez would issue a law, Decree Number 33, that set five to twenty-year sentences for crimes, quote, against rural properties. By 1983, he would criminalize all land invasions. In these darkest of times, in a part of the country where access to land meant everything, Canuto might have been the only visible champion Olanchano Campesinos had to choose from. At any rate, Canuto was chosen first by the Honduran central state. In the late 1980s, the Honduran secret police force, the National Investigation Directorate, or DNI, pronounced Canuto its public enemy number one within the province of Olancho. It is an open question whether the military-dominated police truly intended to capture Canuto, or whether they merely used him as an excuse to penetrate and exercise control over Olancho's towns and villages. Human rights advocates have shared with me their conviction that the latter was more likely the case than the former. It seems a stretch to claim there was police complicity in the longevity of Canuto's career, but more than one informant I spoke with suggested the police may not have been trying very hard to bring him in. It would probably be impossible to trace the provenance of some of the more fantastical Canuto stories, but we should not forget it was the police themselves who faced off against Canuto, and who therefore may have spun the first stories about many of his most oft-recounted exploits. In the case of Padre Vicente's kidnapping by Canuto, a police lieutenant asserted that Canuto got away by turning into a black cat. In other cases, when state forces had him dead to rights, Canuto is said to have caused police officers' guns to jam, or that he simply disappeared. Perhaps police were simply frightened of him and the legend that grew around him with each successive coup. As with ghost stories, the narrator's genuine fear would have contributed to the tale's effectiveness, making them more true, in a sense, for teller and listener alike. The enmity between Canuto and the police was probably more than a myth. It was probably perceived that Canuto enjoyed making fun of the hapless police who pursued him. He punished them, rubbing their faces in their own incompetence. Knowing that the majority of police did not know what he looked like, Canuto reputedly derived much pleasure from buying rounds of drinks for the cops, then revealing his identity to his incapacitated adversaries. 
In spite of the possibility that rank-and-file policemen delivered what they felt were earnest accounts of their encounters with Canuto, however, we will find circumstantial evidence to suggest that both the state and the media more consciously participated in Canuto's demonization through narratives with territorial overtones and implications. A peasant woman from the northern Olancho municipio of Esquipulas del Norte tells the story of Canuto's final escape from the police in 1991. Canuto had some children there, in the neighboring village of Las Delicias, just across the departmental boundary with Yoro. So that's where the military went to hunt for him, as though they were hunting for deer. But, people say, they couldn't find him because he transformed himself into a tree full of ripe bananas. The soldiers were tired, so they stopped there to eat the bananas, without realizing they were really eating part of Canuto's clothing. I spoke with Captain Jorge Bueso, retired, a high-level police officer who took part in the humbling hunting trip. He told me his specific assignment when he was transferred to Olancho from another department was to track down and capture or kill Canuto. He failed in meeting this goal, but he confided with a smile. He succeeded in setting up local spy networks in most of the major towns and villages in Olancho. Captain Bueso made sure I took note of the fact that he had had multiple civilian spies working for him on every block in the city of Juticalpa. No one but he knew the identity of the spies, so everyone, spy or not, lived in a constant state of paranoia. All of this was justified under the pretense of a manhunt for Canuto and his small band of highwaymen. Though the network of orejas, or ears, did not lead to Canuto's arrest, This infiltration by the police did help the central state to keep tabs on potential political subversives and to keep the lid on land reform pressure from below. Even with his much-reported, though much-disputed, death in 1992, Canuto served the central state's project of marginalizing the potentially rabble-rousing Olanchanos. At least two national papers related a moment in Canuto's storied criminal career when he purportedly fired gunshots at Padre Vicente's feet, forcing him to dance and, what is worse, to drink coyol, a palm wine produced only in Olancho, that is at once the pride of Olancho and among non-Olanchanos, a symbol of peasant backwardness. According to an Olancho correspondent for La Tribuna, quote, he was a man who shot at the parish priest several times, forcing him not only to dance, but also to drink coyol wine. When I asked Padre Vicente about this incident, he grew agitated, telling me he had sent multiple letters to the editors of the paper to debunk that confabulation, but to no avail. The newspapers did not print his letters or retract their misstatements. For their part, Olanchanos have adopted and mirrored the state's and the media's own representations of Canuto. But they subvert those representations, too, by giving a positive light to Canuto's mythic cunning and fearsomeness as well as by providing locally biased, egalitarian lessons implicit in their interpretations of Canuto's actions, motives, and values. Yes, Canuto loved Coyol. Yes, Canuto was deadly. Yes, he would exact swift revenge when provoked. But his vengeance was just. Campesino renditions of the Canuto story correct police and landlord representations of Canuto as a ruthless, mindless killer. Most of the self-described campesinos who shared with me their stories of Canuto were careful to portray Canuto as a paragon of probity and honor. He carried candy and coins in his pockets for the children and was courteous towards women. 
he only killed in self-defense. If he shot at a soldier and missed, it surely meant he was intentionally sparing the fellow's life. Canute, though, said one informant, only killed his enemies. End quote. When I pressed my informant on this apparent tautology, he elaborated, Canuto only intentionally killed members of the Sevilla family, those who had slaughtered his own kin and ruined his life. By this man's reckoning, the final death toll left in Canuto's wake, whatever that might have been, would have been lower if the state had permitted local values to prevail. These values do not, however, merely counterpose the local to the central state. Campesinos have also summoned various Canuto episodes that reveal the Olancho peasants' challenges to existing economic circumstances. By the late 1980s, these challenges were many. On one side, Gualaco and other municipalities found their forests under assault by wealthy timber magnates. On the other side, conservationists were demarcating new national parks that threatened to eliminate important usufructory rights to land the campesinos considered theirs. In addition, land use conflicts between various social groups, especially between cattle ranchers and smallholding subsistence farmers and caficultores, were a constant threat to erupt into open conflict. The narratives people tell today about Canuto's exploits in the 1980s helped to reveal just how heated some of those disputes were, and, I argue, represent a now attenuated but still important campesino counter-narrative that challenges central state authority as well as cattle ranchers' inordinate power and class injustice more generally. Olanchanos, for example, claim Canuto always shared a portion of his loot among the poorest members of the villages where he circulated. More than this, or so the story goes, villagers actually felt lucky when Canuto came to call at their home, demanding food and shelter. As one informant told me, using a bit of circuitous logic, Canuto was known to be such a dangerous man, no one would think of harming a family that was abetting him. Families therefore felt safer when he was with them. Further, a family could be sure that Canuto would remember and eventually repay their kindness. In one disturbing case, Canuto is said to have cut off a man's head with one machete chop for attempting to steal the corrugated roof of a house where Canuto was staying. Despite the mixed evidence, Canuto's sense of honor came, say his admirers, with a sense of economic justice. According to most Campesino authorities' accounts, Canuto specialized in aggrieving the rich. He especially targeted the wealthy landowners, the big cattle ranchers of the area. Canuto was both keenly intelligent and, Nunez's poetic license notwithstanding, rather slight of frame. According to local legend, Canuto would disguise himself as a woman at night, stand by the side of the road, and wait for a rich landlord to drive up. Upon successfully catching a lift, Canuto would remove his disguise, inform his wealthy victim whom he was dealing with, and rob him. The proceeds, of course, went almost entirely to the poor. Again, as with the story of Canuto's humiliation of the police, the theme of this narrative is twofold. Canuto both rejects and mockingly defeats the imposed social order. In fact, the historical Canuto probably had a more equivocal philosophy regarding economic redistribution. Some informants who knew Canuto acknowledged upon questioning that he was la mano derecha, the right hand, of one or two wealthy cattle ranchers in Olancho. 
This piece of information, which from an outsider's perspective weakens the Campesino's counter-narrative considerably, is decidedly not part of the authorized Campesino account. This may not imply any intent on the part of the storytellers to deceive the listener. It is, I think, just as likely that many of the storytellers themselves are unaware of this detail of Canuto's life, or they may bracket it, either more or less consciously, as an extraneous detail that simply does not contribute to their moral tale. A territorial theme resonates within all these narratives. In the case of the police, Canuto wards off unwanted outsiders who supposedly emanate from beyond Olancho's borders. In others of his merry adventures, Canuto fences off abusive cattle ranchers from this heretical moral landscape, in effect giving notice that northern Olancho is a realm where the underdogs have a defender. His antagonistic relationship with the landlords, at least within the orthodox Canuto canon, provides an antidote for the false consciousness of a simple-minded rallying around the Olancho banner, when such comes at the cost of a critique of unjust differentials of power, land, and wealth at the local level. Further evidence of Canuto's importance as a territorializing symbol, albeit an inconsistent one, can be found in the different ways Campesinos discuss Canuto's relationship with nature. As we have seen, Canuto benefits from a connection to the earth that is so close he is able to transform himself into a banana plant. In keeping with his vaunted sense of reciprocity, folk narratives emphasize that Canuto was a fierce protector of his people's patrimonio, by which is meant, in this context, the community's inherited endowment of renewable natural resources. In particular, he helped protect the surrounding forested mountains upon which virtually all non-ranching Gualaqueños depended for their livelihood. Captain Bueso, in fact, commented that Canuto was an admirable defender of the forest from overlogging and other abuses. The stories that attribute to Canuto a conservationist ethic reveal a concern less with nature untrammeled as with nature as patrimonio, that is, as the people's inherited resource. Some stories tell of how Canuto tracked down a family of timber poachers from Catacamas Olancho who were denuding the forests around Gualaco to warn them that if they did not desist, he would kill them. At another time, he kidnapped and threatened the entire Gualaco Codefor, Federal Forest Service, staff, angered by their corruption and hypocrisy. When he learned that the police were setting a trap for him, he used the Codefort truck and employees as a distraction to facilitate his escape into the woods. One informant, a self-identified ecologist and one prone to exaggeration even when discussing matters unrelated to Canuto, told me that Canuto succeeded in stopping all fire setting throughout the municipio of Gualaco for an entire year by threatening, once again, to kill anyone who set a blaze. I inquired further about this, asking, but if Canuto always sided with the poor, how could it be that he would stop campesinos from engaging in the slash-and-burn agriculture they depend on? In response to this challenge, my informant replied, Well, the little fires were okay. He just stopped the big fires, and the ones that were lit out of caprice. When I questioned a bit further, asking why Canuto would bother to legislate and adjudicate such matters at all, the answer was that Canuto felt grateful to Codefor because one of their employees had recently given him a lift in the company truck. His way of saying thanks was to thusly endorse Codefor's preoccupation with fire suppression. The contradictory tales that first pit Canuto against Codefor, then make of him their ally, would not surprise Padre Vicente 
in whose curt appraisal Canuto was little more than a misguided drunk. However, what remains constant is the positive valorization given to Canuto's behavior in each campesino's telling. Most likely, many of these narratives contain large elements of truth. When all the many Canuto stories are synthesized and interpreted, when all the many Canuto stories are synthesized and interpreted, they draw a portrait of a well-meaning but wildly impulsive man on the run. His greatest gift to Campesino Classolancho was not any particular action, but rather the prodigious cache of discursive munitions he left behind for utilization by local subalterns. The situation is very complicated, however, and of course so is Canuto's legacy. The Honduran central government, as we have discussed, had its own reasons for acceding to and in fact promoting these stories that reinforced the idea of Olancho as a region in need of taming. More recently, a large cattle ranching federation based in northern Olancho has used the department's somewhat earned reputation for lawlessness to its political advantage. The organization spokesperson was able to bully the state ministry of security into boosting police protection of the rancher's property by threatening to mobilize more than 500 men, armed with AK-47 machine guns, to serve as vigilantes against local criminals if the state wouldn't do it. The Canuto narrative contributes to Olancho's alienation from the central state, and while this may be seen as desirable by Olanchanos interested in autonomy and autarky, it has also facilitated the rise in power of a cattle-ranching elite that is in many ways homologous to the mafia families of 19th century Sicily, who filled the local-level vacuum of power left by the Italian state and proceeded to thoroughly subjugate the peasantry. Brave narratives notwithstanding, Canuto himself appears to have been a hired hand for some of these regional power brokers. He was, at least for a time, one of their armed retainers. It bears repeating that the Canuto story is at once discursive and counter-discursive. More than this, it is a narrative that belongs to many voices and which has many audiences. It does not speak truth to power. It spins yarns to and through several nodes of power. Certainly the campesinos of Olancho would have to be considered in most senses less powerful than even the weak Honduran state. But the persistence of a distinctly Olanchano interpretation of Canuto's career indicates a gaping hole in the central state's ability to organize consent in the region. Also, although the local state dialectic just discussed is an important one, it is far from the only one we can identify. The central state speaks to Honduras, we need to protect you from Olancho. Olancho speaks to the state, we will always better you, you will never truly belong here. Ranchers speak to the state, we must arm ourselves to protect our investments from dangerous criminals. Campesinos speak to ranchers. You will get your due if you mistreat us. Olancho speaks to in-migrants from neighboring departments. Danger. Keep out. It is not quite right to assert that the competing strains of the Canuto legend work to cancel each other out, but it is certainly the case that the Canuto legacy is a muddled and contradictory one. Also, we must recall that the so-called central state is not monolithic, nor merely central or non-local. Though the state had an interest in the promulgation of the Canuto legend with the design of facilitating an oppressive, anti-subversive monitoring campaign, it does not follow that the majority of rank-and-file police officers and soldiers charged with tracking him down were conscious participants in this terror tactic. 
They might really have marveled at Canuto's skill and luck, and they might have found that contributing to the Canuto legend helped them save face on the occasions when he outflanked them. In addition, ties of locality, consanguinity, and simple admiration complicate the picture of police versus Canuto. Captain Bueso, for instance, was related to Canuto by marriage. Bueso's father is supposed to have received a personal note from Canuto asking him to beseech Bueso to end the manhunt. Canuto invoked the family connection, explaining that he had thus far spared the policeman's life out of respect for their kinship. Family connections in general, so important to Olanchano's social structure, may help to explain a surprising fact. Stories told about Canuto are less inclined towards magic and are far more reserved in Gualaco than in the department of Olancho as a whole. In part, this may owe to the fact that people in Gualaco can speak with greater authority on the details of Canuto's life and therefore do not have to resort to supernatural explanations for Canuto's longevity. Also, and this may be the more important factor, People's appreciation of Canuto's defense of local patrimonio is tempered by the pragmatism dictated by their proximity to the much-embittered Sevilla family with which Canuto Montalban had had his quarrel. One interviewee I spoke with abruptly changed the direction of our conversation when I asked him the question, Did you ever help Canuto? He whispered emphatically, One of the Sevillas lives in the next house over. If I say some things, it won't be good for me. So, we turned to talk of other things. Not one of the Gualaqueños I met with was of the opinion that Canuto was even a bandit. Rather, he was a man who wound up on the wrong side of the unjust and unwelcomed law, and, of course, on the wrong side of the Sevilla family. I did not have the opportunity to speak with the Sevilla family. Perhaps if I had, they might have defined Canuto as a bandit, or something worse. In and around Gualaco, discussions of Canuto did not revolve around his powers or even his crusades against the twin evils of the central state and the local ranchers. Instead, the first order of business is to relate in no uncertain terms the status of Canuto as being alive or dead. One of the newspapers reporting Canuto's death, a revenge killing purportedly, asserts that Montalban's mother, who has since died, positively identified her son by a photograph taken of his cadaver. Some Gualaqueños, though, insist she made this statement so as to guarantee her still-living son's continued amnesty. Several of the people I spoke with felt it very important that I understand that Canuto is still alive, or that Canuto is dead. Each of them had what she or he thought was incontrovertible proof to substantiate the claim. These theories were so numerous that I soon developed a mental image of Canuto as Schrodinger's famous cat. Canuto's aunt didn't have a theory for me, however. All she evinced was a deep and abiding sadness. One of Canuto's sisters, she explained, went insane as a result of the family's tragic dissolution. She described Canuto as a good boy who used to visit her all the time until the business with the Sevillas transpired. When I asked her whether Canuto was still alive, this frail old woman looked as though I had just punched her. After recovering a little, she managed, Many of his friends think he's still alive, but I haven't seen him since he was sixteen or seventeen, when he first ran into trouble. She continued, He had a lot of courage. Too much, really. So much so that most people, when they saw him, would run away. 
but I think that fear was the reason he did what he did, and he never had enough courage to come back here.